Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Matt. I'm very excited because, well, I'm very excited about two things. First is that you have a wonderful and wise and very good and enjoyable and fun and touching book out called Praying with Jane Eyre. <laughs> and I hope that all of our listeners already have their copies and have already given a copy to a friend. But what our listeners may not yet realize is that you also have a companion podcast that is being released. Can you tell me more about your wonderful podcast? Yes, it's in our Hot and Bothered feed. It is season three of Hot and Bothered. It's called On Air. I'm co-hosting it with the brilliant Lauren Sandler, an investigative journalist who has spent her life reporting on women in poverty, which is a fantastic angle to bring to Jane Eyre. And episodes come out every Friday in the Hot and Bothered feed. And Matt, as you know, I graduated from Divinity School six years ago, but I actually got graded on this podcast by Stephanie Paulsell, our mutual professor. She texted me and wrote, OMG, Vanessa, your intro to On Air is perfect. We think that that's an A plus, right? Not just an A. I don't, I don't think that's a grade. That would make your friendship weird <laughs> if she's sending you <laughs> grades on your professional accomplishments. <laughs> I think that's just a good friend giving an honest opinion about excellent work. Well, what everyone is about to hear in their feed is what Stephanie Paulsell calls perfect. And it is the first episode of On Air. And we're really excited. We're spending the season tracing where power is in Jane Eyre and where desire is in Jane Eyre. And since Jane Eyre is like one of the original romance novels, talking about it in our podcast feed dedicated to Romance is Sacred seems like the right place. So we thought that we would drop that episode in here so you guys could get a taste for it and then hopefully hop over and subscribe to Hot and Bothered to listen along. Also, I think that Stephanie does not give A pluses. So do you think that this was her first ever A plus that she gave? Yes. I think so, too. You have an idea of what kind of person likes Jane Eyre. It's a woman. It's a white woman. It's a twee white woman. She likes tea, dried roses. She blushes easily. She dreams of his and hers embroidered bath towels. If she drinks coffee, it's spiced with pumpkins. I'm obviously here to tell you that you're wrong. I love Jane Eyre, and I don't even like tea. Also, I think it's important to point out that there doesn't seem to be a stereotype of a kind of person who loves Dickens. And I know that you know this, but it has to be said for the record. Women who like potpourri and whose embarrassment pinks up their faces are wonderful, brilliant women. It's just that it's not just potpourri ladies who love Jane Eyre. It isn't one kind of person who loves Jane Eyre. Maya Angelou loved Jane Eyre and would reread it frequently. Zadie Smith loves Jane Eyre, and she doesn't love Wuthering Heights, by the way. Stacey Abrams, Amanda Gorman, Jacqueline Wilson, Hilary Mantel, they all love Jane Eyre. And I don't know their feelings about potpourri, but my point is that serious people, not just victims of patriarchy, but its biggest enemies, love this book. The thing that most people get wrong when it comes to the Jane Eyre fandom isn't just who we are, but what it is that we love about it. Whether or not we're twee or white or women, 
you think we love it for its romance. And we do love its romance. But we also love its resistance. We love it for its obsession with injustice. We love it because it's angry. Jane Eyre is perhaps the foundational text about rage, injustice, class, and religion, and what it means to be alone, unseen, and unheard. The book somehow straddles the line of marginalized and canon. It's both seen as part of the stuffy white male part of literature, and yet is also managed to be seen as silly for young girls who don't know better than to fall in love with men like Rochester. But it was revolutionary for its time and certainly isn't antiquated for today. I loved Jane Eyre before I read it. My mom had been telling me about her favorite book my whole childhood. Oh, that reminds me of Jane Eyre, she would say. I asked to be able to read it by the age of eight, but she told me that I wouldn't appreciate it until I was older, and it was decided that I would receive it at the same age she had read it for the first time, 14. I, of course, fell in love. Jane Eyre was fated to be my best earthly companion. I am an atheist Jew, and I have a book coming out next week. It's called Praying with Jane Eyre. That is how much I love the novel Jane Eyre. I wrote a book about praying with it. I don't expect you to love Jane Eyre as much as I do. Maybe you do. Maybe you love it more or better than I do. Maybe you've never read it before. Maybe you get Jane Eyre the novel and Jane Austen the writer confused. It's fair. Same name and similar dresses. Not only do I not expect you to love this book, the fact that I love this book isn't even my motivation for doing this podcast. Because regardless of how well you know or like this book, here's what I think. I think that Jane Eyre has been key in forming you. I think Jane Eyre has been key in your understanding of romance, of piety, of hypocrisy, of being parentless, and of a lot more. That's because our whole culture around romance is a result of Jane Eyre. It was a blockbuster sensation, which influenced the next generation of romance, which influenced the next generation of romance after that. You don't get Carrie and Mr. Big from Sex in the City without Jane Eyre. So even if you haven't read it, you've read or seen its inheritors. You've eaten its fruits. Its DNA is in you. And that's why we're doing this podcast. What is this fruit that we are eating? I love Jane Eyre, and I believe it is an important novel. But I have this lingering question. This book was handed to me when I was 14, as it was handed to my mother when she was 14 as it was handed to millions of women at formative ages in their lives. I have a 13-year-old stepdaughter. Do I want to hand her this book in a year? Do we want this book to carry on informing us the way that it has? First, it is so white. So even if we recognize that it is about rage and injustice, 
Do we want this version of rage and injustice to be the key story that we pass on? And at the end of the day, this is a book about an 18-year-old governess falling in love with her late 30-something-year-old boss. And more to the point, it's about him falling in love with her. This season of Hot and Bothered, we'll be doing more than discussing what we think is the genius of Jane Eyre. We'll be considering whether its genius continues to justify its pride of place on our bookshelves and its continued influence on our culture and in our lives. I'm Vanessa Zoltan, and this is season three of Hot and Bothered on air. Today's episode of On Air is your introduction. We are going to give you all of the information that you need in order to dive into this book and help us walk through it slowly, deliberately, feeling out its gifts and its difficult moments. First, I'm going to tell you about Charlotte Bronte. Charlotte was born the third of six children, and trauma started accumulating around her early. She lost her mother when she was five years old, and by the time she was nine, she had gone from being the third sibling to the eldest. Her father made a living as a minister, and the thing about a living is that it stops when you die. The children lived in the parsonage house their father was given as part of his work, but they knew that when he died, they would be evicted. They did not know that he would outlive all of his children. The sisters worried that they would have to support themselves, and as women, their options were to teach or to marry, or to be geniuses, which is what Amy March in the 2019 movie Little Women is also lamenting, her option to either be a wife or a genius. Here she is talking to the character Lori. Why did you give up, Amy? You have so much talent Talent is a genius. And no amount of energy can make it so. I want to be great or nothing, and I will not be some commonplace dauber, and I don't intend to try anymore. What women are allowed into the club of geniuses, anyway? The Brontes? But it's important to know that the Brontes were not always the Brontes. Charlotte was the only one who lived long enough to see any money from the writing that the sisters did, and that is because she was able to live to the ripe old age of 38. I am 39. Anne and Emily died knowing nothing of their legacy and with no answer for which women are allowed into the club of geniuses. There had been a time in which they had hoped that the one boy of the family, Branwell, would be able to support them. But the truest romantic of the family, he suffered incurable heartbreak and instead of finding a trade or a job, drank himself to death. The surviving girls, Charlotte, Emily, and Anne, tried to teach. They really tried. They hated it. 
Charlotte would complain that she couldn't wait for the day to be over so that she could just use her imagination again. Emily hated teaching so much, she just stopped. Charlotte saw another way for herself and her sisters. They could try to make money writing. They had been writing stories their whole lives. They'd been left to their own devices as children while their father walked 20 miles in a day to minister to the members of his parish. Alone in the parsonage, they'd split into teams and they devised competing kingdoms and imagined elaborate stories of their battles. They obsessively wrote the tales into tiny homemade books that are no bigger than my thumbprint. I've seen one. In order to read it, you need a magnifying glass. The Bronte sisters published the first book that they wrote together as adults, a collected book of poetry. But this book did nothing much except help them pick their intentionally androgynous pseudonyms. Acton for Anne, Kerr for Charlotte, and Ellis for Emily. Belle for Bronte. Then Charlotte wrote The Professor, her first novel. I had the chance to talk about The Professor with Professor Elsie Mitchie. I tell my students it rhymes with bitchy, right? Oh. <laughs> and then they never forget it. <laughs> yeah. Professor Mitchie is a professor of English. She's also the associate dean of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Louisiana State University. She had this great story about Charlotte. So when her first novel, The Professor, was rejected, and I think this is hilarious, she kept sending it out to publishers, but she didn't put a new wrapping paper on it. So she just crossed out the publisher that it rejected and wrote the name of the next publisher and sent it out. So there's a part of her that was, that was very aware of rejection. But then Charlotte had to take her father for cataract surgery in Manchester. And then that means he has to sit with, he has to be in a bed without moving his head at all. And so she's sitting beside him and she has this time and she begins to write like crazy. And it's interesting to me if you read Charlotte's description of writing it and Williams is her publisher's description of getting the manuscript. They're virtually identical. I mean, he gets the manuscript. He thinks it's going to be nothing, right? I mean, here's an unknown ma manuscript and he stays up all night reading it. He can't put it down. It's the same way for her with writing it. She can't put it down. And I think for most people, that quality, that like, it's like something going downhill, that novel. And it, and it took readers by storm. I mean, it, if you read the reviews, it's pretty amazing that the first published novel of uh, an unknown novelist got the kind of response it did. Under her new name, Kerr Bell, Charlotte wrote Jane Eyre. It was an overnight success. Anne wrote Agnes Grey, which sold pretty well. And Emily wrote Wuthering Heights which was not well-received, though, of course, gained a passionate audience in later years. But it was Charlotte's Jane Eyre that changed their lives and changed English language literature and was given to me on my 14th birthday. It was a psychological book about the interiority of a young woman with no wealth or beauty. Nothing like it had ever been read before. Queen Victoria stayed up until 11.30, 11.30, reading it. 
Virginia Woolf went on pilgrimage to Charlotte Bronte's house, the parsonage in Haworth. And then Sylvia Plath went on pilgrimage to it, the next generation. The book that is one of the central texts of second wave feminism chose a Jane Eyre metaphor for its title, The Mad Woman in the Attic. Here's Rhymes with Bitchy again. 1980s is when feminist criticism really hits its stride, right? And the big book that does it is entitled The Mad Woman in the Attic. That was arguably the breakthrough book in um, feminist criticism. And I was at Yale in graduate school at that time, uh, where there were um, almost no women professors. And we were reading Man, Woman, and the Attic in a woman's reading group, right? And we all had to spend $25 for it, which was, seemed like hugely expensive back then. But it was magic, right? And and But it was the crossover book. By the time I got out of graduate school, people were teaching it in graduate classes. So I think before then, you had feminist criticism that was mostly read primarily by feminists. And Man, Woman, and the Attic sort of claimed this territory, like, like everybody needs to be thinking about the Brontes, uh, Shelley, um, Austin, Emily Dickinson, and everybody needs to be thinking about, you know, angels and demons and how are women represented in novels. So I would say Jane Eyre became sort of the poster child for feminist criticism. But it didn't end then. If you've seen Gilmore Girls or 10 Things I Hate About You, then you've heard Roy Gilmore and Kat Stratford laud the genius of Charlotte Bronte. The Life of Gemma Hardy, The Woman Upstairs, Re-Jane, Wide Sargasso Sea, all retellings of Jane Eyre. There are Jane Eyre operas, ballets, art, removable tattoos. Jane Eyre is ubiquitous and it's a work of genius. But should it continue to occupy such a central place for us? Or is it time to sideline Jane Eyre? I cannot possibly be trusted to think this through credibly. I'm too biased. I love the book too much. So I turn to one of the smartest women I know, Lauren Sandler, to insert just a little ambivalence. And another life, maybe Lauren would be an English professor. That would be the life where she'd followed her English degree from Barnard and her Victorian literature studies in London to their logical conclusion. Instead, Lauren is an author and a journalist. She mainly writes about women and inequality. Her most recent book, This Is All I've Got, is a narrative about a young woman alone in a cruel system, searching for love and connection, and most of all, for independence. A young woman like Jane Eyre. Jane Eyre is not Lauren's favorite heroine, and Jane Eyre is not Lauren's favorite book. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Vanessa. More from her next episode, in which we will be reading Chapter One. Each week on On Air, we will be reading between one and three chapters of the book. As we discuss what we read that week, we will pay special attention to two things. Where is the power and where is the desire? And we'll use those questions to guide us through the book's gifts and its pitfalls. Nicole Perkins is the author of the forthcoming book, Sometimes I Trip on How Happy We Could Be. She's also someone who has spent her whole career thinking about women's desire. We asked her why it was so important to focus on that throughout the season. 
I spend so much time focusing on women's desire because I do think it is a way for women to get their power back. We lose so much power and control in our lives, you know, from the time that we are start to walk, you know, we have to become aware of our bodies, sit with your legs closed, don't run around too much, don't bring too much attention to yourself, but also make sure that when someone looks at you, that you look this way and not that way, you know, that kind of thing. And so it's always about making sure other people feel comfortable with you. And there's so little focus on being comfortable with yourself. I think taking back control of your own desire is one of the first steps in breaking down the barriers into true autonomy, true independence and freedom and and choice. I mean, it's wild, right? Did Jane Eyre teach me how to desire or is it part of what has always taught me to behave? Is it a story of resistance or a story of submission? We'll follow the power and the desire and see where it takes us. We'll start next week with chapter one in the next episode of On Air. You've been listening to On Air. We're a small show, so we need your support to run. If you can, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash hot and bothered rompod. If you love the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We are a Not Sorry production. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. Our associate producer is Molly Baxter. And we are distributed by Acast. We'd like to thank Elsie Mitchie, Rhymes with Bitchy, and Nicole Perkins for talking to us this week. And of course, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltian, Stephanie Paulsell, and all of our patrons. <laughs>